This is Top Floor, episode 80. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 80. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Lori Keel took a travel agent correspondence course in high school and sold vacuum cleaners door to door, but she found her home in hotels. With almost three decades of experience in positions that range from convention services to general manager, Lori is chief commercial officer at the Kessler Collection, a company where she has worked for an almost unheard of 14 years. Lori is a champion of the industry's move away from siloed sales, marketing, and revenue management teams to commercial strategy. And she works to lead the way through trial, error, and transparency. Today, Lori and I are going to explore automation, relationships, and silent meditation. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and basically just anyone who has a burning question. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Ling. This is what Ling says. I've been noticing some OTAs or other websites are selling my hotels at rates that we don't have, usually lower than what we have. How can I stop this from happening? I cannot tell you what a great question this is, Ling. Everyone struggles with this. Dying to hear your answer, Lori. Yeah, those are known as affiliate sites. And so when you sign an agreement with an online travel agency... You really want to pay attention to those clauses that include their affiliates because that allows the online travel agent to extend the reach to their partners, if you will. A lot of times those partners um, like to reduce the rates so that they can get you to come to them. They also like to mask the URL. So if you've ever seen where you go to find your hotel and you click on the link thinking it's your hotel and you end up in... Uh, some strange website of uh, an OTA. That's what that is. So again, it's it's really important that whoever's signing those agreements pays very close attention because once you sign the agreement, you sign away your right to uh, be removed from those affiliates. That's interesting. So no recourse if you know somebody new comes along or or realizes that that was the case. It's worth the fight. Uh, we've certainly done our own cease and desist, and again. Sometimes it's just a cover letter of just doing a cease and desist and, and the, the affiliate will drop you, but it's not always the case. And again, I think that OTAs are now having to be more upfront with those affiliates. I know Expedia is, but it's definitely something you need to pay attention to because they they have their ways of getting people to the site and the, the guest or customer has no idea that it's not your site. Interesting. Oh, that's such good advice. Thank you. Yeah. I know you have said that your experience in the hospitality program at Daytona State is something that you consider irreplaceable enough that you wouldn't trade it for a Harvard degree. 
What it, do you think is the relationship between hospitality studies at the university level and the reality of our business? Like, what's the role of academia there? You know, I would start by asking a question right back, which is then or now. Mm. And the reason I say that is because then, back then, when I started hospitality school, we were encouraged to get a job at a hotel or a restaurant immediately. Like on day one, English 101. You were told if you want to be in the hospitality industry, you need to get in on the ground level right now and start gaining your experience while you get your education. We also did a lot of volunteer work within the community. So I was fortunate enough to be in Daytona Beach, which has so many special events that we were exposed to, whether it was race week or spring break um, or any of the summer programs when MTV would come in and you'd be able to get in there and, and really work through it. The concern I have today in today's environment. I see more interns and less full-time or part-time roles. And I also see in the interns that I have the benefit of having on our team, the curriculum is not relevant to the job we do today. And that is a problem for both them and us, right? (laughs) I I don't believe that that is a university problem. I think that the industry is changing. We are moving so quickly. When you think about... Just marketing. If you were doing marketing 10 years ago, it is a very different discipline today. 10 years ago, it was a creative job, really uh, ad buys, uh, colorful ads, putting, making sure your targeted demographic was someone that would read Good Housekeeping or Grace Ormond or whatever it was. We don't do any of that today. Marketing is 100% analytical, very digital. You really have to know um, words like CPOR and um, you know return on ad spend. And, and again, so... That's my concern today. The then or the then and the now is back then it was able to be more relevant because the industry wasn't changing faster than the textbooks. Today, I think it is quite the reverse. And so that is something that um I think we've got to help fix that. I think I think it's a, an us and them. We all have to work together to get that figured out. I think you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. You are a member of HSMAI Foundation's Board of Directors, and you've basically served on every advisory committee and in every role in HSMAI. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement in that organization and maybe some of the projects that you're most excited about or working on right now? Yeah, HSMAI is my happy place. I thoroughly enjoy the work I do with them and compare it to an extracurricular activity in school. I had always told myself that I would one day leave corporate life and teach hospitality in a college environment. Same. Right? <laughs> but little did I know that the opportunity to stay in my, my career and still give back would be offered to me in the, form of, in the form of this association, HSMAI. So today, I get the opportunity. Last night was actually a high for me. Through my relationship with HSMAI, I was asked to speak to the graduate hospitality school at Virginia Tech. Again, something that I only dreamed that I would do eventually. And I get to do that as an after-work curricular activity. (laughs) I don't know how much better it gets than that. I was able to work with Peggy Berg um, before Castell was acquired by AHLA. I also worked on a study on Black professionals that's coming out soon with Larry Rice, who was the president of Johnson & Wales and now runs his own consulting company. Um, And then I also have had the pleasure of working with the HSMAI researcher, Karen Woolard, on some of her small editing and writing projects, which, again, fills my cup. So 
I feel very fortunate. Um, and I'm going to continue to work with HSMAI as long as they'll have me. It's, it's, a, it's a great privilege. Oh, that's awesome. So I don't know if you are aware that Jennifer Hill and I have coined high-tech HSMAI Nerd Week, hashtag Nerd Week. So um, we'll add you to the t-shirt order. <laughs> please do. Please do. Yes. It's like a playground for us. <laughs> yes, yeah, the best. Yeah. I read through so much of your blog on Medium. I always do a lot of research for these questions, but I got real sucked in and I read like almost every entry. So I feel like I know you really well, which is probably an unfair advantage that I have. I know that you attended a silent meditation retreat. I do not want to invade your privacy. I promise. Kind of I do. But I'm wondering <laughs> if you had any breakthroughs or outcomes from that experience that were specifically impactful to your work life. I can only imagine that you had multiple, you know, impacts on your life as a whole. But anything that we could like get the cheat code for. <laughs> that silent retreat was uh wow. It, it still sits with me today is what I'll tell you. So it was born out of um I had turned 50 in May of the pandemic year, if you will. And I told myself as a gift to myself, I wanted to do something really different, something for myself, something that would help me define the, the entry into this next decade. And um, a friend of mine had gone on a seven-day silent retreat. And he said, I really think that you would get a lot out of it. So I booked it. And I never thought about it again. I booked it in May. It didn't happen till October because everything was shut down at the time. So when I went into that silent retreat, I really had no idea what I was going into. I had brought all my journals and my pens. I thought I was going to write and read. And I get there and on day one, they tell you, you cannot write, you cannot read, you cannot watch. The only thing you're allowed to do is to meditate, sleep, and walk in nature. That's it. Oh my so we, word. Oh my word. It's exactly right. Um, so I literally would, we would meditate for up to eight hours a day and then I would, you know, walk the campus and then I would sleep a lot. And at the time it was almost a little bit annoying because you just couldn't understand why, why, and where were we going with this? It's like, why can't you at least read? Read, I know, or write. Yeah. But what I came to understand, and they, they taught you through the series of meditations that you did was that in order to silence those voices in your head, and, and again, not, not saying that I'm, you know, no split personalities here, but <laughs> the to get through the ego and to get through judgment and to get through all of those layers of our personality and really understand what lies um, at the very core of your being, you have to take everything away. You have to strip everything that could be a distraction away so that you can get there. And it takes a matter of days to do that. And it it, it is much like, um, I hate to say like maybe the layers of grief, but you do go through those different periods of emotion where you're just really angry. Like, why am I doing this? And why did I sign up for this? And I'm leaving. And then you get kind of sad because you're, you're thinking about the things. But to that point, once you get there, you realize why you did it. And then when I left the silent retreat, coming off that mountain was almost as ceremonious as going up. Because when I came off the mountain, I realized how deep I had gotten. And I was almost fearful of just jettisoning right back into my life where, it, where I left it. And so it's taken a long time to kind of process through that retreat, believe it or not. It's the retreat that keeps on giving a year and a half later 
what I took away from that was truly the power of silence, the power of silence in your everyday, the power of silence in the boardroom, the power of silence in a one-on-one with someone that you're leading or a one-on-one with your boss. I have truly learned that sometimes to just be in silence is the best place that you can be. And you can speak louder in silence than you can with your words. And so I practice silence every single day. Sometimes it's in the form of meditation. Sometimes it's just in my hour-long drive to work being in silence. Just no radio, no nothing on. Just letting myself be in silence. And I, for me, at this point, it's, it's part of my life. Silence is part of my life. Will I ever sign up for another silent retreat? The jury is still out. <laughs> this last year... This last year, I did not go on a silent retreat. I went on a, a, a women's retreat instead, which was was wonderful, not quite as deep as the silent retreat. But I would recommend it for anyone and everyone that if you really want to get to know yourself, that's the way to do it. Can you tell that my heart is beating really fast right now? I do not have the gift of silence. And so that probably means I need to do it, right? You are a commercial strategist, which in very general terms means that you are helping to push our industry to approach top-line revenue through the lens of a unified team of sales, marketing, distribution, pricing, revenue, blah, blah, blah. Can you level set that a little bit for the listener We've talked about commercial strategy on this show before, but I don't know that people completely understand what changes in a commercial strategy model versus the sort of status quo model. Yeah. The first and almost the only thing that changes is that you align all three disciplines, marketing, sales, and revenue under one leader. Having one leader is where the strategy begins. And then the second priority is in fully aligning the team dynamic. Okay. So within each team, there is a dynamic that evolves based on the many stages of a team. And I am very, very well studied in the team dynamic because I recognized early on that if I was going, if I was going to have any chance in making this work, I needed to understand that. And so it's forming, it's storming, it's norming and performing and it's cyclical. So a performing team can go right back to forming the minute a player on the team changes or the the minute that a title on the team changes, right? That's when you have to get back to this forming stage and you go through this process again. This is amplified by the convergence of the three teams striving for one common goal. So the revenue team is always in its own team dynamic of forming, storming, norming, norming, performing. But then you add in sales and marketing and having all three that have to go at the same speed on the same highway, but hopefully will respect each other's guardrails, passing lanes, exit ramps. That is the key to leadership. It is leading that team, moving the obstacles out of their way, helping them translate to each other those things that are paramount to those partnerships. That is the key. And I stand behind that. I tell you, I've had a lot of conversations in the last couple of weeks about the potential of having a commercial strategy certification. And I don't know how you do that because ultimately the expertise still has to lie in the three disciplines. I need a revenue expert. I need someone that knows sales. I need someone that knows marketing. But you need a leader that knows how to work 
with disparate teams and can bring them together. And that's where I think that the knowledge is. I think that's where, if there was a certification, it's how to lead multiple teams for one common goal. Ooh, that's interesting. And I really like that. I feel like sometimes the push to commercial strategy is too heavily weighted in one of the disciplines. And so it's interesting to think about that. You know, when I was coming up, all of those did report into one leader. It was just a different leader. So um, it's interesting. Kate Berta and I talked about this. She was episode two. So this is quite some time ago. And she said something... She said a lot of things that have stuck with me. But one of them is that she believes moving the hotel business forward requires a shift to making the operational leader on a hotel property and the commercial leader on a hotel property equals with equal power, equal authority. What do you think? (laughs) I could not agree more. In my opinion, at the property level, the GM, the director of finance, the human resources director, and the commercial leader should all be at the same level. They should be considered the EC team And they should have the exact same authority on that team. At our corporate level, it is designed the exact same. Uh, Our COO is on the same level as I and our chief human resources officer. And we all have the same authority. And in that, we all have the same amount of skin in the game. And that really pushes us to make sure that the accountability is spread throughout the three or the four on the property versus one person holding the bag for the whole thing. Um, Again, it goes back to that leadership. It is so pivotal in the team dynamic and how you align people in the department or over another department, it changes the entire dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I see that because I've seen hotels where the GM is the, you know, the leader and then Maybe th- these two fall under. And then, and all of a sudden, you see, instead of focusing on the role, people are focusing on where they are in the organization. And that's a distraction. Right. Well, they become, instead of their client being the guests of the hotel or the owner of the hotel, the client becomes who they report to directly or who their counterparts mm-hmm. are. I read your post about how the sales discipline continues to lose sort of internal market share by adapting rather than evolving is I think the phrasing that you use. So meaning Mm -hmm. sales teams keep following the evolution of tools and tech rather than leading it. Can you give some examples of what you mean by that? Yeah. First and foremost, what I believe is happening is that I, as I mentioned before, marketing has completely transformed. What marketing was and what it is today is two very different things. Revenue management has in some ways been forced to transform and has also was very willing to transform because they didn't want to be underneath sales anymore. And because of all of the work that we were doing in spreadsheets, we were very happy to see some tech come along that was going to help us get there. Sales, on the other hand, has continued to try to hold its place. Like This is who we are. Nothing has really changed. We moved from maybe Delphi to whatever the sales system is that our, our brand is on. But we're still doing the work the way we always have done it. This is where I believe you're going to see the biggest transformation in the near future. And and I believe it has to happen. And so bottom line is, if you are going to get the experts of the experts in sales in the coming years, and if you want to be an expert in sales, you've got to be able to do both. 
you have to be able to bring the skills and the strength from the past, which was relationship, relationship, relationship with a sprinkle of tech savvy, right? That's going to be the differentiation in a salesperson is someone that has both, right? And so I think today, what I see and what I'm challenged with this year is that the newer salespeople that we have brought on, especially post-pandemic, what we have taught them about sales is that it is just tech. The lead comes in, it drops in a funnel, you grab it, you send an e-proposal, it comes back, you send an e-sign document, it comes back, you send a electronic event order. And we just do this whole thing. And at times we may never even speak to you. Well, and the question becomes, why isn't that automated at that point? Why is there a person involved? Because it's sales. And at the at the end of the day, sales is about relationships. And so at what point is it okay that you never have any touch point with that person? I don't believe that that is sustainable. I think for the quick piece of business for an express meeting, you could get that done, but that is not going to be sustainable for the long run. For your business, if you're a hotelier, you need guests that will come back. You need guests that are going to think of you time and time again. You need guests that believe in what you are selling. But if you never sell to them, how do they know? So it is It is a big... Man, for me, you hit a hot button because this year, that is exactly what we're working on. We have a lot of tech initiatives to teach our salespeople how to use the technology to sell. But I am also pushing who is in your book of clientele? Or how about do you even have a book of clientele? Because you need one. Just going from hotel company to hotel company and catching and closing, that's an administrative job. That is not a sales job. Or that's an RPA job down the road. Like that could be automated. You don't need people for that. Um, Mm -mm. So further to that, what do you think is the role of prospecting in hotel sales right now? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Funny. (laughs) No, you know what? A song comes to mind immediately. The Justin Timberlake song is, it is dead and gone. (laughs) I think... We have been very fortunate to have our funnels full of leads from meeting planners that have to get their meetings back on track, right? Especially associations that have to have meetings in rotation. So in the last couple of years, again, we're just catching and closing. We've got full funnels. We don't have to try very hard. However, that we all know, anyone that's been in sales for any length of time knows that that funnel will eventually dry up. And if you're not working through the the networking the research, we call it R&D now. If you don't want to call it prospecting because that turns you off. I love that. Call it research and development. So smart. Get on Google. Right. Just This is what we do anyway. When my husband says something that I want to argue a point, I go and I Google it. And then I send him (laughs) a fact, right? It's the same thing. Just, okay, I need business. It's, you know, I need business for March. What's coming? What's been here in the past? Do the R&D and then make a friend. Hey, Sally, I see that you all were here last year. You ever thought about our hotel? Sally may be so happy to hear from you because she needs to get that darn thing crossed off her list and she hasn't had time to think about it. Make it easy for Sally. Sorry, hot button. No, it's so good. (laughs) I mean, Lori, not more than two years ago, I had someone tell me proudly about how every salesperson in all of the hundreds of hotels he oversaw 
was required to do 50 cold calls a week. Like what in the world? You what? Huh? That doesn't even, that doesn't help anyone. Like again, offshore it or get an AI voice to telemarket to people. If that's what the volume that you have to do is crazy. I love that. Sales R and D that is brilliant. Yeah. 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 So (laughs) how does marketing fit into the commercial team as the internet evolves away from reliable or trackable attribution? And what I, I don't think that they don't fit in. That's not the point I'm trying to make. But there is a tremendous amount of emphasis on attribution in every marketing call, every deck that gets put together, every single conversation. And so I'm just wondering how that's going to evolve as everything becomes less attributable. Mm-hmm. Right. You know that this is coming. And so what are you doing about it right now so that you can survive it when it gets there? And so if today we've had the supreme benefit of delivering ads to a very targeted audience, but having that foresight to know that that's going away, you should be collecting that data on that demographic right now so that you can understand where they are. If you know that that's what's coming, you should be doing that R&D and marketing. You should be going, okay, who are these customers that are that I am targeting and that are now buying? And let me create personas, buyer personas for them. And let me understand what that's going to look like. So when I get there and I don't have the benefit of doing that anymore, I will still have a relevant strategy to go and target that customer. I think that makes a lot of sense. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we get back, Lori and I talk about making the hotel business more attractive, where automation fits in, and a behind-the-scenes hotel secret that you have never heard covered before. Be right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference, taking place March 21st through 23rd at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. For more information, visit hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with a couple of practical and specific tips to try either in their businesses or in their lives. As someone who fell in love with hotels early in your working life, how do you think we can make this business more attractive to people who are the age you and I were when we got started? How can we get people to fall in love like we did? Yeah, this is something we're talking about in almost every meeting that I'm in and the associations that I belong to. And we have to squash this reputation that we previously worn like a badge of honor. It may be good storytelling, but it is bad for attracting people who want to join you on the battlefield. Um, so we've got to show the, the more positive side of hospitality that there's various paths of entry. 
right? So there's a place for someone without an education to apply for a job and build a career. There is also a place for a college graduate to start. And it doesn't have to be right next to the same person who did not um, have any education, right? And I think those are some of the things that are fighting us right now. It is the reputation that we are 24-7. We work every holiday. We never get time off. And then it's this other reputation for those coming into the industry that it doesn't matter that you have a bachelor's degree. You're going to start at the front desk 3 to 11 no matter. We have got to fix... That's a PR problem. That is a PR problem. And we've got to fix that as an industry. We have to stop telling those stories and we have to start speaking what is the truth. And the truth is that if you come on board and you show great passion and talent, we've got a career for you that can last the ages. And that is the story that has to be told for the future leaders. Kind of shifting gears, how do you think automation fits into the hotel business? This is a big topic. I talk Mm -hmm. about this to as many people as possible. Yeah. um, I actually was talking to someone earlier about this as well, relative to revenue management system AI. And um, it is here. The best of the best know how to utilize it without it getting in the way. I like to liken it to using a pen and a paper. I was saying this to the person I was talking to earlier that in the old days, when you would um, do your work, you did it with a pen and you did it with a piece of paper. And at no point when you were doing the work, writing the letter, the memo, whatever it was, were you ever thinking about the pen and the paper? You weren't. It mm-hmm. would, they were just the tools you used to get the job done. With tech and automation, we have to get to a place that that technology is not an obstacle to getting the job done. And it doesn't replace the skills required to get the job done. It has to be a tool. It just that, it just has to be a tool. One of the ways I see that this happens often, especially in my sales discipline, is with regards to Cvent. Cvent is a platform where meeting planners go to source business, right? And so it's not a source. It is a platform. Mm -hmm. So I love when I ask one of my salespeople and I say, well, where did that piece of business come from? And they go, Steven. And I go, no. (laughs) I'm like, who who went to Steven and looked for you on... I'm like, you have to understand there's a person behind that. That is not generating a lead for you. It is just the place where the lead transacts. So again, it's that get the tech out of the way. At no point when you said, well, how did you write that? You know, what were you thinking when you wrote that letter? Well, I was thinking about this red pen. No, you weren't. You were never thinking about the red pen. So how do we keep moving? It's still so early, I guess, in, in the world of automation. But how do you keep moving and working with the technology rather than for it or around it? We have a long way to go. Let me listen. Chat GPT just hit, right? And I did my first chat GPT over the weekend. I just wanted to try it out with some friends. And so I was popping some things in there and holy cow, what it would write for you. And I said, again, this has the potential to be a disruptor unless we get our hands around it and we understand how to use it, when to use it. And to your point, I mean, what a great tool if you are procrastinating about writing something or you need to write something that's in a specific format that you're not familiar with, like a press release or something like that. It's a great red pen doesn't replace the brain. Right. 
One of the things I love the most about hospitality, and I've seen this in exponentially since I started the show, is just when I think I'm like, I know everything. I've been doing this for a really long time. I've got this industry. I get it. I discover something new every single time. So what are a couple of new tricks that you have learned recently? Um, I would say... Okay. Embarrassingly enough, we have just got on Microsoft Teams here. <laughs> the rest of the world has been on Teams, I think, forever. Our company's just getting there. So I'm learning Teams and I'm trying not to look like the old head of the group that <laughs> every time I'm on Teams, I manage to close the entire thing down. So yeah, that, that's the one that I'm working on. But less embarrassing, I think, is the immense benefit in centralization in agencies. I have long been a fan of working with agencies to get work done because you're able to work in a focused environment without worrying about the human side of that piece. There is no recruiting and training and retaining. It is, this is the project I want to get done. The agency is part of the team that I am now working with to get it done. And when you can put all of that aside, you can really focus on the work. So for me, I think that is my newest trick. My newest trick is how do you use third parties as if they are your team? Because they are. I, I treat them as if they are, they're sitting right here beside me. They're as much a part of this organization as I am theirs. And I think that's something we're all going to have to get used to. Because in the world of staffing, where we're seeing... A, a still huge staffing concerns. You've got to find other ways to get it done, whether it's sales or it's marketing or revenue, but it can't be out of reach. And so you've got to figure out how to use those third parties as if they were yours, because they are. Excellent. We have reached the fortune-telling portion of our program. We are going to predict the future. I'm going to play this back for you at Nerd Week, and we will see if you are right. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a prediction that you have about the future of sales in hotels? My prediction is that both skill sets, relational and tech, will have to converge to become the experts of tomorrow. I don't think you can get away with being great in one or the other. You have to know how to create relationships and maintain them online. If you could wave a magic wand and create your dream come true piece of technology or your dream come true integration, what would it be aside from teams, which we already know you love? <laughs> okay, selfishly, you're not going to see this coming. Selfishly, I would like to have an RV or campground platform like Expedia. There is no streamlined way to book a campground, which as a hotelier is super frustrating, right? So we know how to do this. In, in hotels, we've got OTAs, we've got online travel agencies. If I want to go to a hotel in Miami, I've got hundreds to choose from. I can see their pictures and their reviews. This does not exist in the RV or camping world, but it needs to. It's really, really important. And this is a huge demographic of people that are traveling these days. Everyone went and bought an RV in the pandemic. Now we got to know where to go. Um, professionally, we've got to streamline the communication channels. That's what I would tell you, uh, Magic Wand, is that in today's environment, I am getting communications all day long. And they are coming in the form of email, chat, text, LinkedIn, 
So at the end of the day, to make sure I haven't missed anyone, I have to go to all of these various places to see who communicated with me and make sure that I responded back. We've got to find a way to streamline that. It's just, it shouldn't be this hard. I mean, Lori Keel, I think you just founded two very lucrative startups on top floor. So stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be releasing your investment opportunities here very shortly. Oh my gosh, those are both really good ideas. What about what's next for you and what's next for your company? Yeah, for for our company, we're launching our management company in the coming months. Um, Unlike the typical management company profile, we are hoping to find owners that are similar to Kessler Hotels. Um, owners that have beautiful properties that they want to have managed by a company that understands the value of their property relative to the market and its valuation. We really think that we have a niche here because, again, Richard Kessler, he doesn't allow us to um, apply normal revenue management principles against his hotels. This is not a RevPAR driven company. This company is driven on ADR and market share because again, it matters to the valuation um, of his product and, and the amount of investment he put into that product. I have to believe there's other owners out there as well that need that same kind of care in the management of their hotels, which is very different than what most management companies do or how they operate. So that is where we're going to be unveiling uh, or launching our management company, hopefully in June. I mean, this could not be more exciting of a conversation that we're having right now. I do not want to stop, but I know we have to tell you goodbye. So before we do, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Lori, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Uh, this one, I don't. I this is a hard one. I this I, the only thing I could think of to tell you is the weirdest thing that I can recall. So we're going to just go with weird on this. So awesome. What I can share with you is when I worked in West Palm Beach way back in the early part of my career, we had so many people. You got to be ready for this. We had so many people die in the hotel that we actually had to create a death team. And so everyone on the team knew what their role was. So when a dead person was found, everybody knew where they had to go. I, being the most squeamish of all of the people on the team, I was tasked with always going outside and waiting for the authorities, (laughs) whether it was an ambulance, fire truck, police to arrive and I would bring them to the elevator and send them up to the floor. But again, who, you probably belong to a safety committee and ops and EC team. How about the death team? That's that's about as weird. It's so smart though. What a good idea. And you know, that way people don't get flustered and do something really, really stupid, which is usually the type of story that you hear around death. Well, Lori Keel, thank you so much for being here. I really think our listeners are quickly starting some companies based on our conversation. (laughs) And I so appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash eight zero. 
Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 